Welcome back to Talk Evidence, your regular look at the evidence around COVID-19. It's been a little while since our last episode, which I have to say mea culpa. It's entirely my fault. I managed to lose my recording from last week. So I persuaded Helen to come back a little bit earlier to do another one. It's all going a bit wrong out there as well in the UK. Rates are shooting up and we're getting more tier three lockdowns. Um, But what does that actually mean for your risk of getting the virus? Uh, Well, that's one thing that we're going to be looking at this week. Also, risk is hard to intuitively understand. And we're going to hear from Alex Freeman, who's one of the risk communication experts at the Winton Centre in Cambridge, about how you can explain it better. And then finally, with all along, we've said that COVID is showing the cracks in all of our systems. And uh, Hussein Naji has taken a bird's eye view, uh, a look at all of the COVID papers published to tell us what we could be doing better. I'm Duncan Jarvis, multimedia editor for the BMJ. And as always, I'm joined by Helen McDonald. Helen, can I get you to introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Helen McDonald, UK Research Editor at the BMJ. Uh, And again this week, no Carl. So you might have a more relaxing listening experience, but I'm not going to rule out any rants at this point. Okay, Helen, let's talk um, risk, uh, personal risk in particular. And we've just published this um, Q-Risk tool from Julia Hippersley-Cox, sorry, this Q-COVID tool from Julia Hippersley-Cox, who listeners might be familiar with, um, from the Q-Risk for cardiovascular disease. Yes, thanks, Duncan. I mean, we've talked on this show about several of the big studies that came out right at the beginning of COVID that described which types of people were being admitted to hospital particularly. Um, And I think we've come to an understanding of the types of people who are more likely to uh, get COVID, um, particularly men, um, older people, and people with underlying cardiovascular disease. But we've been waiting on studies that might predict that going forward um, and give you some kind of absolute number that might apply to you perhaps at an individual level. Um, And the BMJ has got an active living systematic review of risk prediction studies. And we've talked to the authors of that before about the fact that there isn't very good quality or hasn't been to date very good quality evidence on this. So I was interested to spot this study from Julia Hippersley-Cox's team, who obviously have um, their database in place in UK primary care and lots of, um, I guess... um, quality or recognised of a sufficient quality uh, data um, that might help us to design that um, so it would be large and complete and we can understand what population it's drawing from. Um, So I thought it would be interesting to tell our listeners a bit more about it. So yeah, it's it's uh, it's an interesting paper. I'll put the links, obviously, uh, in the text and everyone else can go and have a look at that. But what they've done is um, look at all of those kind of medical and I suppose some demographic factors that that actually seem to predict the risk and I'm not going to go and pretend that I understand 
how their modeling works and that they managed to pull this out. But what they've ended up with is this um, QCOVID uh, algorithm. A bit like the QRISC one where you just put in some factors um, personalized to you, which then comes back with... What types of things does it ask you for, Dan? So it asks you things like your ethnicity and your age, obviously. Age is a big risk factor that we, we've known about for, for a while with this. Uh, things like diabetes, um, if you've got type 1 or 2, um, COPD, heart disease, various bits and pieces. Um, there is a, uh, when you go into the tool, which unfortunately is down for maintenance now, it's obviously been pretty popular, it also asks you for your um, postcode and uh, a little bit of delving into the paper um, made me understand that that's, that's about some kind of factors that look at, at potential deprivation, um, which again, we know that that has been a, a risk factor. Um, and what does it spit out at the end? So it tells you your risk of catching or catching and dying or being, what, what's the output? So it gives you uh, two risks, your risk of hospitalisation and your risk of death from COVID. Um, so obviously it's not going into any of the, the other sort of morbidity factors, long COVID or anything else, uh, or your risk indeed of, um, of catching the disease in the first place. This is all about outcomes instead. Mm. It is quite a tricky paper in some ways to get your head around, particularly thinking about how would you actually use this? Because to some extent, I suppose, when you do things like Q-risk, um, for cardiovascular disease, you, to some extent, do it to try and identify things that are modifiable for the person that's sitting in front of you. Mm. And, of course, much of this at the moment, or the much of this is taken out of our hands because there are national or regional decisions about how your life can be <laughs> at the moment. Um, perhaps the only thing on there that you could honestly modify might be um, control of your chronic disease or your weight. Um doesn't seem that there's there's a huge amount else and there's an interesting editorial link to this by Matthew Sperrin and Brian McMillan in Manchester uh, which I think highlight another um, sorry which I think highlight a few other useful things to think through when you read the paper so particularly this paper reflects the risk for a patient under similar circumstances to the UK um, and receiving similar care to the UK um, in the past so they did this study uh, running up till April, and mm. this describes almost if no actions are taken. Um, so things are different to that now. Um, the prevalence of the disease is different, variable, changing over time. Treatment has changed a bit since April. Um, yeah, absolutely. We've even that. just in terms of honing supportive care, I think for those people hospitalised, thing, things seem different. And also people's behaviours may have changed. So there could be some people um, who are shielded um, when this study was done, so which I guess might therefore underestimate their chance of getting COVID. But conversely, there might be some people who were perhaps less cautious than they might have been because they didn't, they didn't know um, that they were at increased risk who we subsequent, subsequently have learned are at higher risk. Mm. Um, so it's, it's kind of a hard one. <laughs> 
I think. But still, I think useful to have and useful to have a play with. Um, And it also goes well with another study which came out recently on bmj.com, which looks more at predicting your risk of adverse outcomes in COVID at the point of hospitalisation. So that's the the 4C tool. Um, So if you're interested in predicting risk, I think both of those papers are definitely worth a look. Yeah. And um, what we didn't say is that this is going to be apparently yet another living um, thing. So it's going to be updated at some point in the future. Uh, So perhaps we'll see more up-to-date data there. And I was just thinking when I... um, when I got my risk back, when I was able to do it first time round, you know, it gives you like a one in 14,000 or whatever the the risk was. And you could put a few factors in and it changes a little bit. And I I realised I, I don't kind of really understand what that means for me. You know, I, like you can't intuit that, that level of risk. Well, that is very fortuitous timing because if you had your eye as keenly on Twitter as I do (laughs) at times, (laughs) not all the time, um, you would have spotted an outpouring of tweets coming from one group in Cambridge who work very heavily on risk communication headed by David Spiegelhalter. Um, And they've done some work recently, which I spotted on looking at how the public actually want risks of COVID to be communicated. and subsequently and separately to that, although I think it's been a long time in evolution, they've also developed a tool in general to help with your understanding of risk where you can go and plug in numbers from a research paper that seem very distant and spit out some absolute risks. And to learn a bit more about it, I spoke with Alexandra Freeman, who's executive director of the Winton Centre for Risk and Evidence Communication at the University of Cambridge. Um, and we had a little chat on Zoom. I mean, I think we all hear so much about the risks of COVID and everybody's trying to make decisions every single day. You know, is it safe for me to go out to the shops or should my choir restart? These are things that people are talking about all the time. And in order to make these kind of decisions, we're all weighing up risks and benefits. And at this point in the pandemic, you know, at least six months after it started, we're starting now to get some good statistics which allow us to get an idea, a firmer idea, of what those risks really are for different individuals who have different risk factors. So now that people are starting to develop sort of personal calculators and put all these statistics together so that you as an individual could put in your details and get an output, we need to be able to communicate what that output means. I mean, if it just spits out a number, if it says, you know, your risk is 15%, what does that mean? Um, Mm. So that's really why we've been doing so much work. I mean, at the Winton Centre, we are here to try and communicate evidence to all sorts of different audiences. And the most important audience for us here is, is the public. So we've spent the summer talking to people, doing experiments with people online who uh, thousands of people have very kindly done very long and tedious questionnaires for us, um, (laughs) where we give them outputs and numbers and pictures. And we've been looking at what they like and what they understand and how people think about these numbers and about the risk. 
So how we can turn the outputs of statistical calculators into something that really means something for people. And what do we now know? What, what do they like or dislike? Maybe it's as useful to know what they dislike as well. Well, what's been really interesting, um, and this came out of talking to people, so we've had members of the team spending you know, hours on the phone with people and on Zoom with people, talking to them about how they perceive the risks. And what comes out really strongly to me is that numbers are essentially meaningless to most of us. Um, you know, it's like reading a word in Russian or a language you don't understand to most of us. Um, and I include myself, you know, if you read a sentence with a number in, you quite often just skip over the number. You're looking for the actual meaning and that number doesn't bring that meaning. So if you're told that your risk of dying from COVID is, say, 2%, what does that actually mean? You know, you've got to put it in context. So what we've been doing is trying to see what people, how people perceive risk normally. Um, and what's come out is that they think of it in a sort of persona in their mind. So when we ask people, what does high risk mean to you? What does low risk mean to you? They would describe mm. a person. So they would say, oh, you know, high risk. Well, that's, you know, a 90 year old oh. with uh, some health conditions. Um, and so we found that, you know, even when we'd say, can you put a number on that? they really struggled you know that was not natural to people so <clears throat> we've been trying to present risks in a way that helps people put the numbers alongside the imaginary people that they already have in their minds so what we've done is take what people have got in their heads and put them along an actual visual scale and then been able to put numbers alongside them and then when they get the number for themselves out of the calculator, moving the little arrow along to show where you are on this visual scale in relation to those people that you've got in your head. Ah, so we kind of sense check ourselves compared to other people around us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so what's, what's been important is to understand what people already have in their heads along that mm. scale. Um, and, you know, we looked at things people have been saying, well, maybe it would help to compare it to the risk of being knocked over by a bus or being struck by lightning or getting heart disease or cancer or other things like that. But actually, no, people didn't. Those are two very different risks in people's minds. Mm. They don't feel comparable. Um, the risk of dying from seasonal flu was slightly comparable to people, maybe because it had been in the media quite a bit about comparing COVID to flu. But generally, people had COVID risk in their mind and they had a set of sort of person personas, as I put it, that fitted different levels of risk. So I think helping people put themselves in that picture of other people, imaginary people in their heads, has been the best way that we've come across of helping people. That's so interesting. I haven't seen anything presented quite like that, I have to say, before. Alex, do you know anything about how clinicians think about risk compared to members of the public? Well, now that's a really interesting question. So we did interview clinicians, um, a set of 10 clinicians, when we were developing um, our work around the COVID calculator. And we found that they were very keen to be able to discuss the risk with their patients. And I think they really understood that everybody has a very subjective impression of risk and that they shouldn't really be the ones trying to interpret whether something's high or low risk. 
it's very much up to the individual. And if you think about it, that makes complete sense. Because if I told you that your 10-year-old had a 1 in 20 chance of dying from COVID, you'd be horrified. I mean, that's a really high chance. You know, you'd imagine the primary school of 20 children and that one of them would die. But if you told your 90-year-old mother that one in 20 of her friends might die of COVID this year, she would probably see that in a very different sense because, you know, to be frank, there's quite a high base mortality rate when you're 90. And so to interpret risks as high or low simply on the basis of that absolute risk level is really missing the point. And so people have to be able to take the information and put it within their own framework of risks and what that means to them. And so clinicians want to be able to share that information with their patients in as clear a form as possible so that their patients can put that in perspective for themselves. They don't want other people to be doing it for them. Now we could talk about this more but I have noticed that your group have been very active on Twitter recently and you've got a lot of other related work underway and I wanted to find time to touch on some of this. So you've done this work on on how people wanted information presented in COVID and simultaneously um, your your group have been launching this tool online um, to to help people actually plug in numbers from research papers and get out um, some absolute uh, risk information. And I'd like to hear a bit more about that as well. Um, it looks like it's been going long before COVID. <laughs> yes, the team have been very busy over the summer, but I have to say that Real Risk, this new tool, has been in development a lot longer than that. I'm embarrassed to say it was on my to-do list when I first joined the centre at the end of 2016. And it's only just come to fruition. And that's thanks to some other people in the team taking the mantle and really making this work. So Real Risk is a tool that's designed not so much for the public, um, but for those who are reading research papers and want to then be able to communicate the results from that, or possibly even writing research papers. So we hope that authors will be able to use it as well. And it's a way of helping people take the important numbers out of scientific research and putting it in a form that other people can understand. And a bit like the COVID work, where we're trying to translate into forms that make sense to people, Real Risk takes out the words and the numbers from epidemiological papers that really are meaningless to most of us, these odds ratios and hazard ratios, um, and puts them in sentences that make sense and also provides graphics. So um, bar, bar charts and arrays of icons, icon arrays, with coloured in people that shows the difference between two groups. And these two groups can be people with and without a risk factor. So it could be um, uh, people with and without um, Alzheimer's disease, perhaps, you know, how many go on to develop X or Y. Um, or it could be a treatment or a drug. So if people are given this treatment, out of 100, how many are likely to benefit? And it's it's been phenomenally popular on Twitter. I was really surprised because we were really targeting this originally at journalists and press officers who have to take research and try and communicate it to the public. But 
I had managed to completely overlook the fact that doctors do this every day. And so this has now really taken off um, within the medical sphere of doctors who want to be able to produce graphics and sentences to help talk to their patients about the potential benefits or risks of treatments. Um, and I would say it's not easy to get the information from the papers. Um, so that's why we're encouraging authors of research papers to use it in order to help and stop other people from having to go through their papers and trying to find base rates. Uh, because the, yes. key to, the key to communication is that a relative risk is really of very little use to you. So if you know something doubles your risk or halves your risk, that's all well and good and it makes a good headline. But actually, doubles it from what to what? Halves it from what to what? You know, if it doubles it from one in a million to two in a million, that may not be worth taking much notice of. And I guess it also allows you to individualise things a bit because if you're... If you're with a patient and their their base risk is actually quite different from averages, it would allow you to personalise that information. So I guess you might not just use the base rate from a particular study. Yeah. Um, and as I say, they're, they're often not in the particular studies. So part of real risk is holding people's hands to help them find base rates. Uh, and we often say, just go back to the authors, they'll have it somewhere. So uh, apologies to all those authors who are going to have a lot of phone calls now of people saying, where's your base rate? So Helen, last week the FDA uh, announced that they've um, given approval to remdesivir for, for treatment of COVID. And this made me a little bit confused because I thought... Uh, having talked to you in the past with your eye on all the trials, that Rindesvier hadn't um, hadn't performed that well. So uh, I thought I would ask you now, um, have you kept your eyes on the trials? What's going I on? I have. I never take my eyes from the trials. And there were a couple of things that caught my eye this week. The first relates to what you were talking about, Duncan, which is that... Um, I think it was actually mid-October now, so going back a couple of weeks, the uh, team of the WHO Solidarity Trial posted their preprint on MedArchive reporting their interim results. So and this that's is the big WHO treatment trial. Yeah, so this is um, looking at remdesivir, hydroxychloroquine, lapinavir interferon and lapinavir interferon on its own, um, looking at their use in hospitalised patients, so people with reasonably severe uh, COVID. And that paper, um, or its preprint version, which has obviously yet to undergo peer review or be published, so it may be that some of either the results or the interpretation of that may change, you would hope not, not dramatically. Um, but that's out there. And I think my reading of that so far is that certainly doesn't seem that remdesivir is a kind of game changer. It doesn't mm. seem to be saying, um, you know, it makes a, a strong or marked difference on those um, patient important outcomes. Um, so we need to just give that a little bit of time now, first to feed through the original publication. Um, but also, um, I do hope that our BMJ publications, um, both the Living Network Meta-Analysis on Treatments and the Living Guidance, um, which is partnered with WHO, will be updated um, very soon um, to help clinicians um, shape their decision making. Yeah. 
And so it must be confusing to um, to have all this different disparate bits of information. So really important to bring it together into. Uh, through a process to, exactly. to amalgamate it. Exactly. And the, the second piece which might interest listeners is there was also a debate article um, which was looking at the lessons um, from the trials of COVID-19. And we've talked quite a lot about the highs and lows of drug development mm. for COVID-19 on this programme, I think. Um, so I was interested to see what this article looking back might suggest that we have learned. I, I almost wondered if it was too soon to do so. But nonetheless, I called um, Hussein Naji, Associate Professor at the London School of Economics, who's the first author of the paper. Hussein, thank you so much for joining us. I wonder if you could start by telling us just a bit about your perspective on drug trials and the work that you do that got you into writing this paper. Well, my research very much focuses on the evidence standards for getting new products onto the marketplace. So I I look at the regulation of pharmaceuticals in the US and in Europe. And there are a lot of parallels in the type of research uh, that is being conducted at the moment for, um, of course, evaluating the effectiveness of therapeutics, be it um, uh, repurposed drugs or investigational products for COVID-19, which is very much the motivation behind uh, writing this piece. So you must have had your eye on the announcement from the FDA in the US about remdesivir. That's right. It came as a bit of a surprise, um, uh, given the fact that the WHO um, solidarity trial, which is one of the really large trials in this space, um, only about two weeks ago announced that there is no mortality benefit associated with remdesivir on the basis of about 11,000 patients. Um, And uh, for the FDA to actually approve the drug on the basis of a regular approval, not even conditional or accelerated approval, but to give it kind of the the regular approval um, has, yes, it definitely has been a surprise. How how do you square that? Because I think there are some peculiarities in how regulators look at evidence um, in terms of the fact that they tend not necessarily, as I understand it, to look at the full spectrum of evidence that is out there, but to look at a kind of dossier of information which is presented, I guess, typically by a manufacturer. Is is that the type of thing that's happened here? Um, so that's not really by design, but uh, almost a de facto uh, situation in that um, regulators, when they look at an investigational product, they only have a few trials to look at because those are the only trials that have been done on that product until uh, until that date. I think it is unusual to have such a large randomized controlled trial to be done so well across the world um, and not to be considered for a regulatory decision um, uh, for, for remdesivir. I think that, that is highly unusual, especially since it uh, conflicts with the results that we're seeing in mm. the US uh, and the US-based trials that Gilead has, um, the manufacturer of remdesivir has conducted in the US. Um, so I would say that that is um, uh, unusual. Anyway, we digress. I was actually going to ask you about your paper, haven't I? We will stop picking your brain on other matters. So you've written this paper for the BMJ, um, looking at some of the lessons from the COVID-19 trials. Um, Why do this now? Because it feels a bit like we're still in the middle of it all. Right. Um, We certainly are. Well, I think, um, you know, lots have been written about uh, what has gone wrong with the research landscape and research efforts uh, on COVID-19 therapeutics. A lot has been written about some of the positives and really good developments uh, in this space. Um, 
And I think we kind of wanted to refocus or uh, kind of center the, the discourse or the narrative around the research that's happening on this issue of comparative effectiveness um, and thinking about, you know, what do the users of evidence want to see from the research that's uh, happening on COVID-19 therapeutics? And are we actually likely to generate this type of evidence with the types of studies that are ongoing at the moment? Or should we think differently? Um, so by users of evidence, I'm talking about patients, clinicians, you know, guidance developers, payers in healthcare systems. And I think the, the key type of evidence that these users want is comparative information. How does one drug compare to another in terms of its benefits and harms? And although we only have one product that works in terms of reducing uh, the risk of mortality on COVID-19 at the moment, dexamethasone, um, it is probably a matter of time that we will have uh, more than one. And then we will need to know how several agents that are available for hospitalized patients or for prophylactic re reasons, how do they compare to each other and which one should we prefer to use um, mm. in our guidelines? So that's, that's very much the premise of, uh, of our article. That's useful. So perhaps we could begin just by talking about what's been done well, what's worked about the COVID drug trials. So we, uh, we we write in the article that, uh, you know, we're calling for more coordination and collaboration among people who are doing trials, among those who are developing guidance, so on and so forth. And I think one thing that's worked really well is that uh, coordination and collaboration has paid off already. When we look at the mega trials, these really large trials, such as the one that's been sponsored by the WHO, the Solidarity Trial, um, its kind of sister trial, Discovery, that was funded by INSERM in France, and the Recovery Trial, which is the Oxford-led trial, of course, in the UK. These trials all share, um, at least in part, the, their protocols, they're, they're simple, pragmatic designs, and the protocol uh, can be traced back to WHO's research and development blueprint, which is a coordination and collaboration effort um, that's spearheaded by the WHO. So that's, it's really, really positive development that this is already paying off this, this collaboration. Um, and we're also seeing um, positive signs in terms of the time it takes from the development of evidence and the development of uh, trustworthy guidance, um, that this time frame has been reduced to days at the moment. You know, when we look at the Australian uh, COVID-19 guidelines, which we reference in the paper, um, we refer to really real-time updating of guidelines as new evidence emerges. And I think this is a really positive development as well. That's great. And what areas do you discuss where either there are problems or you think we could do better? Um, so as, as I said earlier, it, a lot has been written on this, um, this issue of research waste um, mm. in COVID-19 therapeutics. Uh, Paul Glassew has really elegantly wrote in the BMJ um, earlier on in the pandemic about this issue, that we, are, we have a lot of studies that are ongoing. Uh, many of them have poor designs in that they're not randomized controlled trials. Many of them are very small. Um, uh, according to one recent piece of research, the median size of these studies uh, is about 100 participants, meaning that in one arm of the trial, you have fewer than 50 people. So these are really not powered to detect an effect, to observe a meaningful benefit for the treatments that they're evaluating. So, and there's a lot of duplication 
about a fifth of all randomized trials on COVID-19 therapeutics have been on hydroxychloroquine. And that really goes to say that much of the research agenda is really driven by hype and anecdote, Mm. as we write in the piece. And that's really, really concerning. But I suppose within the the good and inverted commas studies that uh, are going on, your paper does pull out some interesting points around where we do have reasonable quality evidence developing, um, ways that we might um, make that even better, uh, particularly around this issue of collaboration and comparing treatments. Do you want to expand a bit on that? Absolutely. Um, I think the really the key issue or the key recommendation that we make in the piece is is very much around thinking within the evidence ecosystem framework, thinking about those who are designing the trials, those who are synthesizing the results of those trials, so in meta-analyses or network meta-analyses and things like this, and those who are actually using the results of those meta-analyses to come up with guidance. And those kind of different pieces of the puzzle um, are not really um, very well joined up yet. And we are seeing some signs, as I've said, uh, of this happening, but there's huge opportunity to really um, uh, make concrete Uh, kind of formal links between uh, people who are designing trials, those who are doing meta-analyses of those trials, and those who are producing the guidance. So we make some concrete recommendations as to how to to make that a reality. And and what are the key key changes that would need to happen? Um, One key recommendation is really thinking about each study as as a, a piece of a puzzle. Um, and really thinking of it as a building block of a, of a larger kind of um, system that uh, when we design a study, we should think about how it will complement the results of other ongoing studies or other studies that will need to happen in the future so that we can confidently put the results of those studies together. Um, what we would like to see is that we... Um, design studies in such a way that they are harmonious in their designs, in the outcomes that they include, in the types of participants that they include, so that when the trials are completed, we can pull the results of those studies together in valid analyses, in indirect comparisons or network meta-analyses, types of uh, types of research. Um, so I think that's a really key recommendation. So I suppose that would help you to both increase statistical power um, around perhaps even rarer outcomes and also allow you, I guess, to look at um, subgroups of patients in a bit more detail. If you were to pick different types of people out, if you were to pick pregnant women out of um, the studies or older people, or, or is, are those the types of things you're, you're thinking of there? Sure, that would, uh, all of those would be possible. Of course, the, the requirement for that or the prerequisite for that is to having access to individual participant level data, which is not a reality at the moment, as we also write in the paper. Um, and, and having timely access to indi- individual participant level data would allow us to look at those subgroups of uh, participants. Um, and really, even in cases where there are subtle differences in trials that we're putting together, for us to uh, at least adjust for those differences and come up with a harmonious um, set of data that we can a- analyze um, for comparative effectiveness. How realistic do you think it is Hussein to achieve that? So as we write in the paper, unfortunately, um, 
progress has been too slow on that front. Um, even in this context of a public health emergency, in the context of this pandemic, um, when we look at the phase three trials of some of the industry-sponsored um, uh, studies, like those of Remdesivir funded by Gilead, um, they have no plans of sharing individual participant level data with the research community. Um, and even those trials that have been completed or have uh, released their results, um, I'm not sure to what extent they are planning to release their data. But I think we can think of a kind of a medium term goal or an intermediate goal um, instead of asking for all data to be deposited and make made available to the entire research community, we can think about prior, prioritizing certain stakeholders in the healthcare system so that they have access to individual participant level data early on so that they can do some analyses. And these could be, for example, health technology assessment bodies in several European countries that uh, they could create a consortium uh, of European health technology assessment bodies and be responsible for having access to data that led to the development and approval of certain therapeutics and then be responsible for doing the comparative effectiveness assessments of those products uh, as an example. And do you think there are specific um, people, I guess, in the, in the evidence ecosystem or authorities that can make this happen? Well, I guess this, this goes back to the regulatory agencies and the role that regulatory agencies play in very much shaping the evidence ecosystem. Um, as as my, my research in other areas beyond COVID-19 uh, very clearly shows, the evidence standards that regulatory agencies set very much shape the amount of information and the quality of information that we have available on drugs uh, and all sorts of other um, uh, therapies. So if regulatory agencies take a stance and actually want this to happen, designing studies in a given particular therapeutic area harmoniously, asking for certain types of outcomes, asking for individual participant level data to be shared in a timely manner, this would be uh, very much possible. Uh, but we're not seeing that happening just yet. European Medicines Agency has taken some steps towards that level of transparency, but it has been uh, quite slow progress. And do you think for individual researchers, such a system as that could feel stifling or you you know you would need to be very well connected doing very high level research in order to be able to contribute to some kind of system like that it, is there a risk that there there would be a harm of taking an approach that was so coordinated um that's a very difficult uh, question a difficult balance to strike i think um i think it's important to clarify that what we're asking for is not um, to be prescriptive or dictating the type of research that needs to be done, but at least to send some guiding principles and signals to the research community so that we know what type of research should be prioritized um, for, for addressing these information needs of the evidence users in the healthcare system. Yeah, it's always interesting to uh, listen to Hussein. He's been on the podcast a couple of times before, talking about, you know, problems with the uh, the way regulation works within the EMA, and um, you know the the data that goes into regulatory decisions that doesn't seem to be very useful from a kind of patient or a doctor decision making point of view. Yeah, I thought it was a useful discussion, um, and worth knowing that perhaps. 
implementing changes from those lessons or reflections that Hussein and others have had on uh, trials for future studies in COVID-19, even ongoing studies, um, could well be useful. I think that point that he made around striking the balance between the freedom to investigate things, I guess, exactly as you want, but also trying to think about what happens to your research afterwards and how, with perhaps fairly limited changes, you can make it so much more useful by making it match up or describe things a bit better or make sure that you're not um, duplicating stuff which is already underway. Yeah, it's um, it's an important balance. Obviously, you don't want to uh, totally define what everyone's doing. But, you know, when there is a big global pandemic like this, it just shows the importance of that kind of working together in the in the most effective effective way and um, i think if you're planning a study of hydroxychloroquine we don't need any more <laughs> <laughs> i think that's the other thing we learned from the interview <laughs> yeah <laughs> well that brings us to the end of this uh episode of talk evidence where we've been discussing risk scores, risk communication, and how to make the system better. Uh, As always, I'll put the links to everything we've been talking about in our podcast text. So you can delve into those studies in more detail if you want to. Whilst you're there, you might as well go and give us a rating if you've enjoyed this. Uh, It really helps other people find us and uh, it makes me feel really good too. We'll be back soon with more from the world of evidence. So until then, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Take care out there.